everyone. Kids, you are dismissed for Gospel Project. Hope you have a great time. Thank you to those of you who will lead the kids in teaching them today. Uh, everybody else, if you'd like to turn to Proverbs chapter 6, that's where we'll be starting uh, this morning in Proverbs uh, 6. If you're uh, new with us today, welcome. We are uh, a church that believes in the sufficiency and the authority of the scriptures that God speaks through a book. So we are taking various topics that the book of Proverbs um, brings up and trying to seek to understand them from the book of Proverbs. So if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair underneath in front of you. So feel free to grab that and take that home with you. Today we're going to talk about work. Are you, happy, are you excited about that? Came back after last week hoping for more of that, I'm sure. But today we're going to talk about work. So um, there are people in the room from grade school till way into retirement. There are people in the room who are stay-at-home moms, or who are teachers, um, who are in college. So when we hear the word uh, work, don't just think a, a nine-to-five job. Put in it the responsibilities that God has placed uh, before you at this particular season in your life. Perhaps that will help us to apply it appropriately. Um, one of the books that's helped me most in this series of messages is a commentary by a guy named Trimper. Now, if you're pregnant, don't name your kid Trimper. I hope there's no Trimpers in the room, are there? Oh, good. That's kind of a, a weird name, but here's something Trimper says that is particularly helpful. Proverbs is intolerant of lazy people. They're considered the epitome of folly. Ouch. Trimper is upset that his mama named him Trimper. He's been grouchy ever since. That is a provocative statement, isn't it? Proverbs is intolerant of lazy people. They are considered the epitome of folly. Proverbs' word for lazy people is a word we don't use. Um, it's called sluggard. Over and over and over again, Proverbs talks very strongly to sluggards. So that's what I get to do this morning. A couple of things about sluggards. Sluggards start the day lazy. That's one of the first things Proverbs tells us about sluggards. So look at Proverbs 6, verse 6 to 11, and we'll see that. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Anybody think baseball when you hear that? Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider his ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler... She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? And then this phrase that comes up repeatedly in the book of Proverbs, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Maybe Trimper's right. Maybe that's the way the Proverbs talk about this person. Now, notice this isn't the picture of someone who sleeps in one day a week. 
It's not what the proverb is getting at. This isn't the image of the person that goes on vacation for a week or two or even three out of the year and sleeps in a whole bunch of days in a row. That's not what's getting spoken of here. Instead, it's habitual laziness. It's a lifestyle of lethargy. It's refusing to do the things that are necessary to live a productive life. So the proverb says that the, that kind of person starts the day out lazy, and over time, that kind of life leads to poverty. So later in the book, chapter 24, this will be on the screens, it says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with needles. Its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. Here's this sentence again. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The picture is lazy people don't get out of bed. Can you believe that that picture is that old? Like this has been a problem a really long time. It's not just many of us today. That laziness, the staying in bed too long, that lifestyle will lead you to not having the basic necessities you need in everyday life. Now, another thing the book of Proverbs says is that sluggards are full of ridiculous excuses. 26.13. There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the street. What would you think if somebody told you that today? That is the equivalent of my dog ate my homework. It's... It's a ridiculous excuse that there's no possible way it's true. So Proverbs paints the picture of somebody who's always looking for some reason to get out of their responsibilities in life. And the reasons border on the absurd. There, There is no lion in the street, right? So there's excuses that the sluggards come up with. And this builds to the point that Proverbs seems to clearly be making, that sluggards are pathetic. That is pathetic. So the rest of that passage, verse 14, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back up to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. The resounding testimony of the book of Proverbs is laziness renders you pathetic. That's pretty hard to swallow, isn't it? Now, instead of being sluggards, the contrasting idea, what we're told to be, to pursue, is to be diligent. So flip over in chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. This would be a great passage to remember, try to think through and apply. Listen to how the diligent and the sluggard are contrasted in verse 4. A slack or a lazy hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent 
makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Wisdom tells us that if you work diligently, then that will lead to wealth. And notice the impact that that work has on others, that second sentence. Diligent people think about how will my work, how does my work ethic impact other people? How do they think about the work I'm doing? Not in the sense of trying to earn their approval, but meeting up to the responsibilities that we have in life in the way that has a communal impact. Now, I assume in the room, the, the, your blood pressure is getting a little bit higher and higher and higher as we think about this. Because you might assume to be diligent means you've got to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. How many, just honestly, that's what you'd hear? As we're talking about laziness versus diligence, is that what you, what you think of? That means I've got to be working all the time. But that isn't the picture, actually. That's not what diligence means. The, the Old Testament, the majority of it, was originally written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word for diligence comes up with ideas more like thoughtfulness, consistency, and persistence. That working hard doesn't mean working all the time. It means, though, when you are working, that you're thoughtful about it, that you're intentional about it. So uh, we, perhaps uh, some of us, depending on our generation, have a saying, don't work harder, work That's very much what working diligently means. It means working intelligently, working thoughtfully. The teaching is not that you should be somebody who's working every single waking moment, but somebody that works thoughtfully. Uh, A few weeks ago, John uh, Hernandez's father passed away. John's in the back. He's uh, a dear brother, is a deacon here. He and his wife so faithfully serve. Uh, John, I loved going to your father's memorial service last week. His name was Pete, correct? Pete, uh, I never met Pete, but I walked away from that memorial, that celebration, wishing that I'd known Pete really well. Uh, They had an an open mic. Maybe you've been to a memorial, a, a celebration, a funeral like that. And person after person after person got up and told stories about Pete. And all of them came down to essentially two things. This guy was really funny. He was a character. So they had lots of stories about that. And this guy worked hard. He rolled up his sleeves and he was productive in life. So if I tracked through this right in my memory, forgive me if I add to the story, uh, but it won't be intentional. Pete worked for 40 years in the military as a cook. Then he retired from that, went on to another job, worked as a, a cook in a restaurant. Then he retired from that, and then worked multiple jobs as custodian in several schools. He worked hard. And people, as they filled this auditorium to talk about Pete, they remembered his diligence. Don't you want to be like Pete when you grow up? To be known as a person that was productive that gave yourself to things that mattered in life. 
It's made an impact on John, certainly. Those of you who know John know that he is a hard worker. Now let's chase a rabbit just for a moment, all right? It's not a lion in the street, it's a rabbit in the church. All right, you ready? Just a question that I think we must ask as we read these passages. Does Proverbs promise that everyone who works hard will have lots of money? It begs the question, does it not? It says, the diligent, the people who work smart, will be what? It said rich. Yes. So what does that mean? Does God guarantee hard work necessarily results in great wealth? Well, that's what it says. So this is now a prosperity gospel. Name it, claim it. I see that hill and I'm conquering it for Jesus. Now, let me try to explain what's, what's going on here. At first glance, that is exactly what it appears to be saying. But the Bible is not actually a book. It's a collection of books. It's a 66 different books gathered together into one. And just like when you turn on your TV or turn on your radio, you see or hear lots of different genres. So you're still with me? So there's something that some people call music, country, and there's <laughs> rock, all right? Uh, you don't expect the same thing listening to, who's a current country singer? What? Carrie Underwood. That's not really country. Uh, what? George Strait, okay. George Strait, and you don't expect George Strait and Adele to say the same thing, do you? No. You're turning it on knowing, you're putting, pushing that app knowing, I'm going to get two really different things. Not just the style, but actually what they're saying. We intuitively understand, I read the newspaper different than I read a novel. And yet when we go to the Bible, we tend to turn off all of those things we intuitively know. Different genres communicate truth in different ways. You with me still? All right. The Bible does the exact same thing. The Bible's full of all different kinds of writing. And when we read them, we have to read them according to the rules of how to interpret that kind of writing. Proverbs as a genre is not the same thing as the letters of the New Testament. So, or they're not the same thing as the Gospels. So when the Gospels promise us in John 3.16, somebody say that with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is a promise for all people of all time everywhere. If you stake your trust in Christ, you will be saved. Proverbs has to be read not like that. These are general statements that the majority of the time will pan out to be true. 
They are not unconditional promises. Those of you in the room who are parents that have grown children, particularly those of you in the room who are parents who have grown children who are not walking with Christ, God has not failed you. I have no idea how many times I've sat with broken-hearted parents who are living with guilt that they failed because someone told them, Proverbs means, if you read the Bible to your child every night and pray with them, then your child's salvation is guaranteed. That isn't what that proverb means. Now, it's still Bible, but it's got to be interpreted in light of the conventions through which it's written. No one's throwing anything at me yet. So what, is, what does it mean in this case? It means on a whole, if you work hard, then you're going to have enough. And usually, you may even have more than enough. That's the general truth. Typically, those who work hard are better off than those who are lazy and selfish. And that's true even financially. But even within Proverbs, we're told that it's not always this way. So sometimes we see godly people get ripped off. Sometimes godly people get fired for reasons they should not have. Sometimes people get sick and they have to go on disability and they can barely scrape by. Are you with me? So how do we understand these Proverbs that say, be diligent and you'll be rich? Understand them as saying, generally speaking, work hard and your needs are going to be met. And even above your needs, those are going to be met. But that is not a guarantee in the same way. If you call on the name of Jesus, you will be saved. It's not intended to express the exact same thing. So work hard and trust God. And generally speaking, you're going to have everything you need. And if you don't, then the body of Christ is responsible to care for you, to provide for the additional needs that you have. That's how Proverbs is supposed to be read. Aim for diligence, not sluggardliness. Now, wisdom says laziness in our work is deplorable, while diligence is exemplary. So if we go back to Trimper, Proverbs is intolerant of lazy people. They're considered the epitome of folly. That's my message for today. Not really. That's too fast, right? You don't get off this easy. At least for me, this begs the question, why? Why is that true? Why does the book of Proverbs speak so harshly to those of us in the room that are lazy? And why does it encourage those of us in the room who are diligent? Why? That may be a really important question for you to have thought about. The challenge with a message like this is in reality, a large percentage of you don't need to be hearing what I'm saying today because your temptation is going to be to receive it 
and then to go out and work even more. And you don't need to do that. But another chunk of you, that timing was impeccable. Um, another chunk of us need a swift kick in the rear end because you're wasting your life. You're sitting around doing nothing productive. You're watching video games. You're playing, you're playing video games. You're watching Netflix. You're just farting around, not accomplishing anything. And you really need to hear this. So let's ask God to do what only he can do. Father, uh, your word is alive, it's living, it's active, it's able to speak to a room full of people who need to hear the exact same words in two different ways. So Father, would you divide our hearts? Would you use the Spirit to speak the words that we individually need to be hearing? so that then we can come together and apply and encourage each other. In a context where some of us need to be told, you're killing yourself working too hard. Go take a nap for the glory of God. And others of us need to be told, grow up, get out of bed. God, I can't do that. So we ask you to do it. Help us in particular to understand why this issue of work matters so much to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What's up with work? What's the big deal with work? Let me give you four big ideas in the broader scope of the whole Bible that help us to understand why Proverbs says what it says. One, work is God's means of provision. Friends, God's design for humanity is that we would work and that through that work, we would have provision. That has always been his plan. Proverbs paints that picture for us. Proverbs 27, 18. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit and he who guards his master will be honored. Do your work and you'll be taken care of. That's the image. Proverbs 12. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. But he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. The normal means of God providing for you is through you. That God takes care of you through you being productive and doing your work. So students, work hard at your school. Programmers, work hard at your programming. Those of you who are retired, you're drawing money from the work that you've done all of these years. Can you use the wisdom God's given you and still impart good things to society, even though you're not being paid? Yes. All of us can do productive things through which our provisions can be given by God. All right, number two, we're going to spend a lot more time on. Work is essential to what it means to be human. Work is essential to what it means to be human. This one will take me a while to, to flesh out. The Bible actually has a ton to say about work. Just out of curiosity, 
Who has ever heard a sermon about work? Okay, maybe, maybe 25, 30% of us. I haven't heard very many, and I listen to a bunch of messages. One author put it like this. The Bible is an album of casual photographs of laborers, a book by workers, about workers, for workers. That's the Bible. For those of you who are from outside the United States, uh, perhaps you've heard people talk about the American dream. Sometimes it's thought of as this. America is the place to come where you can become anything you want to be. Come here and you can become anything you want to be. You can find the job of your dreams. There's no limits. That idea. Now, honestly, I think maybe a generation or two ago, that was the American dream. I don't think it is any longer. I don't think that's the way we actually live. I think it would be much more accurate to say the American dream is cut corners, avoid work, and live for leisure. You can do that here. That's how most of us live. And that's not a dream. That's a nightmare. No one gets to the end of a Netflix binge and says, oh, I just feel so invigorated. <laughs> and yet, you drag yourself off the couch, go to bed, and then do the same thing again the next day. And physically, your body is saying, don't! And yet, we do it again, and again, and again. Nobody ever says, geez, I'd really love to stare at the screen another five or six hours. I just feel so satisfied inside. But that's what we tend to do. Our bodies are telling us implicitly what God's word says explicitly. Work is essential to what it means to be human. Now, where am I getting that? Well, way back in the beginning, if you've never picked up the Bible, the very first book is called Genesis. And Genesis chapter 1 is the story of God creating the world. And God, in Genesis 1, is a worker. God's productive. God's doing things. God is creating. Creation is his handiwork. So then when we turn to Genesis chapter 2, we shouldn't be surprised to see this. Verse 15, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, and keep it. So there's this massively important theological concept that has application, implication in literally everything. And that's the truth that people are made in the image of God. That's why we shouldn't kill babies in the womb. That's why we shouldn't off old people when they can't talk or get out of bed anymore. That's why no matter your skin color, or your intelligence level. Every life matters. We could spend a long time there, couldn't we? That's, that's why 
a special needs person and a Nobel Prize winner have equal worth. And this is just in the first two chapters of the Bible. We're made in the image of God. Part of what that means is God put humanity on planet Earth to work. The vision was Adam and Eve are placed in a perfect place and they're just supposed to run around naked and enjoy each other all the time. No, that wasn't actually the point. They were to do the work of expanding Eden. They were to work it, grow it, till it, be fruitful, multiply, until the whole earth was an ever-expanding Eden, a place of God's presence. When you do your work, regardless of what your work is, assuming you're not a pimp or a hooker or a drug addict or whatever, okay, assuming your work isn't inherently sinful, then the work you're doing, regardless of what it is, is doing good work for humanity. It's living out the image of God, Christian or non-Christian. Now, if that sounds weird to you, then read Genesis 1 and 2 closely and think about the whole broad story of the Bible. The original design was an ever-expanding Garden of Eden. And so there's dignity to work. There's honor and joy in work. Part of what it means to be a human being is that we're contributing to society in a way that makes the world better. Whether we're driving a truck and picking up garbage or in the corner office in an executive suite, there is dignity to work. So it's worthwhile to work in whatever field, employed or volunteer, stay-at-home mom or teacher, chemical engineer or waiter. There's value in work. It's a good thing to work hard, to lay your head on your pillow at night, and to know Today, I was productive. That is a wonderful, satisfying feeling that God has designed every human being to have. If I could push that a little bit further, you're still here. If you go long periods of time without that, then you are losing sight of what it means to be a human being. You are falling out of touch with what it means to be alive. Now, that's not all there is to be alive, but it's an integral part of what it means to be a living, breathing human being. God has made you to be a worker. Work is not a necessary evil, but a worthy good. So to put that in a different image, uh, I sat here a long time because I had a cast on my leg from the knee down. I had a cast for months last year. And when they cut that thing off, I could literally do this around my ankle. Now, I, I know I'm not exactly a thick, muscular dude. But I couldn't do that before I had to cast on. My ankle was that big. Why? Atrophy. I didn't use it. 
That's what happens to your soul if you're not working, if you're just laying around. You're losing, your soul is atrophying. You're missing out on part of what it means to live, the very way God designed life to work. Genesis 1 and 2 demonstrate that God made us in his image and that we are to work. Now, there's a big event that happens in chapter 3. And that brings us to the third point, oddly enough. Work is hard. Work is hard. The story goes like this. And to Adam, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, I would not recommend you quote that at home, husbands. <laughs> because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you ret return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The event between Genesis 2 and this part of Genesis 3 is what theologians call the fall. It's when humanity chose to rebel against God, to say, no thanks, I'll do it my way. And when that happens, stuff falls apart. And so from that moment on, work has been hard. To one degree or another, work is hard. Is it not? Group projects at school, those are like the epitome of satanic involvement. <laughs> Email and printer problems at work. Just when you get the team right, somebody does something really stupid and you got to get rid of them. Constant gossip when the boss isn't around. Incredibly long days at work with a backpack full of stuff you still got to do when you get home. Everything is harder than it has to be. Why? These are the thorns of Genesis 3. Now, this is complicated by two realities. Some of us make an idol out of work. So we look for things in our work that we can't find at work. And so we work and we work and we work and we work and we work, not to put basic necessities, food, on the table, but to try and earn approval, acceptance, uh, value, accolades. We try to provide for ourselves through our work what only can, God can provide for us through Christ. And so that, that makes work much, much harder than it would be. You still with me? But others of us neglect work altogether. And so when we do it, it feels exceptionally hard because we think life's not about that. Proverbs 21 speaks to that. The desire of a sluggard kills him for his hands refuse labor. All day long he craves and craves but the righteous give and doesn't hold back. 
So work is hard, but it's inescapable that we are supposed to work. So our aim, <coughs> excuse me, can you give me that water? <coughs> Thanks. Some of you are hoping I'm done. <clears throat> we should aim to be the employee every employer would want. Not the employee no employer would want. That may be one of the most important ways Christians could stand out. Not by standing on a box with a sign yelling, turn or burn, but by doing your work. Number four, I'm really excited about, encouraged to share with you. Work can get better. Work can get better. It's possible, whatever kind of work you do, to move from a feeling of fruitless toil, everything's in vain, it doesn't matter what I do, to experiencing work as a joyful gift from God. Now, there'll still be days of frustration, but imagine the lack of drudgery and appropriate satisfaction that you could have if work was put in its proper place. Now, how does that happen? I know you're on the edge of your seat for that. How does that happen? Well, let's go deep and then a little bit deeper. So first deep. You've got to quit working for what you can't get from work. Part of what's making work harder is you're trying to squeeze out of it something you cannot get out of it. Work cannot make you feel accepted, loved, justified, meaningful, valuable, worthwhile. Your job can't do that. It can tease you and deceive you and make you think for a little while that it's doing it, but it will not last. So quit trying to squeeze a lemon and get orange juice out of it. It's not going to work. You are getting pressed under the weight of an idol, and that idol is going to smash you. Quit trying to get from work what you can't get from work. And instead, start working hard, but working for the king. King Jesus doesn't put on you an idol of work. He frees you up to do what you've been designed by God to do, and to do it with joy. Galatians, I mean, Colossians 3.23 put it like this. Whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's so helpful. That changes everything. That means you can work for a really horrible boss. That means you can be married to a really terrible person. That means you can be under a parent who isn't a particularly good parent. That means you can be a great student to a teacher that's an absolute jerk and thrive. Why? 
Because ultimately what you're doing in appropriating your responsibilities under those people is you're working for God. And even the way you treat that person who is not particularly um, the image of glee in your mind is a way of serving God. It's a testimony of the gospel. Really helpful book I read this week, put it like this. No matter what you do, your job has inherent purpose and meaning because you're doing it ultimately for the king. You, who you work for, is more important than what you do. The work will tell you that life itself, uh, I'm sorry, the world will tell you that life finds its meaning in success at work or that work is just a necessary evil in the path to leisure. All of those ways of thinking are lies. You do work for someone beyond your boss. You work for Jesus. Isn't that good? That's what we just read in Colossians. It comes from this little book called The Gospel at Work, how working for King Jesus gives purpose and meaning to our lives. Who would read this and take it seriously? Come on up. You're the next contestant on You Get a Free Book. Great book. There are more of those in the back at the bookstall. I think they're $13, $14 just cost. Uh, I hope they're gone. I think it's a meaningful book. You'd find it useful. I would challenge the men in the room. Go back, buy two of those, and ask another brother, read it with me, and let's talk about it. Ladies, go back, buy a copy, buy two or three copies, ask one of the retired people in our body and a, a young mom to read it with you. And listen to the diversity of thought and perspectives and how that can help you in whatever station in life you're in. Whatever the job, it can be done as an act of worship. It can. And that changes the effect of that work. But there's still another layer deeper that we go, I think is even more important than that. Back in Genesis 3, what did, what did it say would, the ground would produce and would make work hard for Adam? Thorns and thistles. Now, fast forward to the Gospels. There's a man named Jesus. Jesus is preparing to be sacrificed on our behalf. Any light bulbs going off? What'd they put on his head? Crown of thorns. Something like this. Now they were mocking Jesus, right? They were saying, you're the king of the Jews. We'll make a crown for you. They squeezed that crown of thorns on his head, he bled, he was nailed, and he died. Jesus took the thorns so you can have the blessing of being his child. That changes what I expect at work, doesn't it? 
I'm not surprised when something is hard from time to time. Jesus took the thorns so we who accept him can have his life. This opens up the gates of heaven so that we can spend eternity with God. Yes, that, the gospel does that. But it also redeems us for meaningful life now. For the Christian, life isn't full of ultimate thorns. We've been forgiven, accepted, justified, embraced by God. So we're freed to live our life fully for the glory of God and the good of people. And that changes your work. Working for the king involves two massive shifts of thinking. And I've got to tell you these really quick and then we'll end. How How do you apply this? How do you put this to work? Begin thinking of work in this way. All work is spiritual. So how has God made me? How do I contribute to society? Maybe you're writing code for Amazon or you're teaching in a high school or you're making coffee at Starbucks or you're writing a dissertation or you change diapers all day. All of those things are spiritual things. What I do on Sunday mornings is no more spiritual than any of those other tasks because they're to be done for God in His power for his glory. So all work is spiritual work. In the 17th century, there was a guy named Brother Lawrence. Most of us in the room would have never heard of him. He was a dishwasher. That isn't something you aspire to. Nobody grows up thinking, I want to wash dishes with my life. But that's what Brother Lawrence did. And after he died... Some people read a journal he kept and some letters he had written. They collected them together, and it became one of the most popular Christian books that has ever been written. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. And this guy, this dishwasher, for years disciplined himself to try to bring to bear the truths of the Bible on his heart so that he could experience the presence of God. Centuries later, people are still reading a dishwasher's book. Why? Because he was doing his work wholeheartedly for the Lord. What could happen with your life? All work is spiritual work. So start your day with prayer and Bible reading so you're orienting your day the right way. And then before you send those emails, before you walk into those meetings, as you're making that cup of coffee, as you're changing that diaper, trying not to vomit, appropriate the truth that God is with you, that God loves you, that God is working through you. It will change your day dramatically. Second, work from your identity, not for your identity. Oftentimes, those who tend to work the hardest and the longest are the most insecure, people-pleasing, fearful people in a company. The ones that look like they've got it all together are usually the ones bent up with fear and anxiety on the inside. 
Why? Because they're trying to get something from work they can't get there. If I walk into work knowing I am already declared right with God, the glories of heaven are housed inside of me because the Spirit is in here. I didn't earn this. God gave it to me. That will mean I am much more free to be productive because I'm not working for something I can't get. I'm working from something that's already been given to me. Now, we don't have time, but write down on your hand or text yourself Titus 3, 3 to 8. Titus chapter 3, 3 to 8. It says this so explicitly clear that Jesus' work on our behalf is a finished work. Our work doesn't add to Jesus' work. We work because Jesus' work is done. And that changes everything. Because Jesus' work of perfect righteousness and total sacrificial substitutionary death is done, then I'm freed from the perils of seeking love and acceptance through work or laziness because I feel like I don't have any worth. The gospel's the key to working hard. Let's pray. Father, you are a creative, handy, working God. You've made us in your image. Part of that image is that we would do your work after you. Some of us in the room need to quit working so hard for a sense of identity when we've already got identity through you. Others today are not believers. And so, of course, they're striving for something. And God, I pray they'd stick around and say, come say to me or to somebody sitting around them, hey, I want to hear more about how to get a free identity from Christ. And others, God, are living lazy lives, slothful, sluggardly lives. God, would you convict where it's appropriate? Would you encourage? Would you apply this word to our hearts? And may we be people that do our work wholeheartedly for you because you did the ultimate work for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.